0: To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit slate.com/slash DSM to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Dead people don't have any secrets.
1: In fact, really sick people don't have any secrets.
0: This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale.
1: The first few texts that came to my husband's phone were just kind of confusing. And then it became more insistent. Where are you? Why are you not responding
0: to me? This is Amanda. That's not her real name. She first told us this in an email, but asked us to change all the names in this story to protect her family. I did a
1: internet search for the number, realized I knew who it was. I wrote back and said, "This is Sam's wife. He can't respond to you now. He's in the hospital." Please don't text anymore.
0: And at what point was that in in Sam's coma? He'd been in the hospital at that point for maybe three days. I talked with Amanda where she works on the East Coast. She's in her 40s now. She was 27 when she got married to her husband, who was several years older. He was the most interesting
1: person that I had ever met. And it was almost like he had tried to do, live his life a different way. And that was incredibly attractive for someone like me who grew up as part of a you know, nuclear family with, you know, Sunday school and, you know, vacation to the shore and everything was very routine. And I was just enchanted by that How do you remember those early years of your marriage? A learning curve growing up. I think Sam had already done a lot of his growing up, and I had to catch up to him.
0: Three years into their marriage, Amanda and Sam became parents without really deciding to do it. Amanda was on the pill when she got pregnant.
1: then about halfway into the pregnancy, we found out it was two instead of one. (laughs) Two babies. Yeah. Did it feel like you were a team when the two babies came along? No. Oh, no. My husband was severely displaced by the arrival of two infants. And I remember at one point... The children could not have been much more than a month old. They're both screaming their heads off. And I am trying to nurse one and give the other one a bottle. And my husband was upset about something. And I raised my voice in like the harshest tone I had ever used with him and said, these are the children. They cannot take care of themselves. You are an adult. You're going to have to handle this yourself.
0: You still get a, a kind of indignant look on your face when you think back to that moment. Not surprised. I was pretty indignant. Were you angry at him?
1: <sighs> yeah. I was angry with him for not knowing what to do. For not knowing how to help me. And it was about this time that I realized, he doesn't know how to help me. And then it became, I don't think he can help me. I'm always going to be the stronger one here.
0: So that's quite a shift from how you saw him when you fell in love. Right. About two years after the twins were born, Sam found a lump in his groin. That's when he was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Did you think it was serious? No. No. We had no reason to think it was serious.
1: This was um, referred to as a nuisance cancer that very commonly develops in elderly people who have lots of other conditions that are much more serious than... The type of cancer that he had. Did it
0: change your marriage at all to have him diagnosed with cancer? No, it did not change.
1: It certainly didn't change the things it should have changed. There were so many things that we should have done, and we did none of them. Like
0: what? Starting with a will would have been nice. Sam didn't have any symptoms after his diagnosis, and his doctors said they'd rather keep monitoring him than do any immediate treatment. But they did tell him his cancer wasn't ever going to go away. That was a big deal, when
1: he finally absorbed the word incurable. In
0: retrospect, do you think he changed any of the the ways that he lived I believe that was the tipping point when he
1: heard that this is incurable and it is going to shorten your life expectancy. He went to this place of living his life in secret and not sharing anything about how he was feeling or what he was doing with me. And I was none the wiser.
0: A year and a half went by. The twins were just about to start preschool. Sam continued to seem healthy. So neither he nor Amanda thought much of it when he came down with what he thought was the flu. Then Sam got worse, quickly. The first thing that
1: he did was he called me by our daughter's name. He... uh couldn't tell you what day it was. He couldn't tell you what year it was. He couldn't tell you who the president was. So it had progressed pretty rapidly. What happened? The cancer had spread. It had entered his
0: spinal column and moved up into his brain. Amanda took him to the hospital, where Sam eventually lost consciousness. She spent most of her time at his bedside, pitching in to help the doctors and nurses whenever she could. Somewhere in my brain, I'd put together this, if I
1: understand everything that's happening to him, then I'll be able to fix this. And so I was very hands-on in the hospital room, caring for him. I didn't stand on the sideline in any way. And you had his phone with you? I did. I had his mobile phone because mine was you know, intermittently working. And boy, there were a lot of calls coming and going those first few days. So that's why I had his cell phone rather than using mine. And you said he had secrets? There are a lot of secrets. The primary one that I discovered when I had his mobile phone is that he was having an affair.
0: Do you think your um, focus on being so involved in his care was related to that idea that you could show him that there was sort of a murder thing happening? I wouldn't have said martyr.
1: I have no desire to be a martyr. I so desperately wanted to be acknowledged for what I was doing for what I'd given up. Did you tell
0: anyone about the affair? I told my mother. And she told my father. When did you tell your mother?
1: When I started getting the texts, she knew
0: while Sam was in the hospital, what he had done. Your husband was in a coma, but did you say anything to him? About that, no. We'll talk about that
1: when you wake up. The only thing that I did in that time that I wish I had not done was with whatever lousy camera was on that early flip phone. I took a picture of him in his hospital bed. Yeah, tubes coming out everywhere utterly dependent state, and I planned to show it to him after he was out of the hospital and say, do you see this? This is how sick you were, and I was there, and I took care of you, but this is where
0: you were." But Amanda never got to show Sam that picture. He died less than two weeks later. Coming up, how Amanda mourned her husband while confronting the fallout from his secrets. Two or three weeks after he died, I was taking a shower
1: fairly late at night and I just started wailing in a way that I had not done in the hospital, that I had not done in the services. Just the enormity of what had happened finally settled in.
0: Last week on the show, we shared your stories about infertility, and we asked you to send in your suggestions for things that have helped you if you've gone through infertility in the past or are dealing with it now. Here are just a few of the tips that have come in so far. This one is from Rachel, who is starting IVF in November. One
1: thing that has really helped me through this process is a subreddit called trolling for a baby. People post funny gifts that tend to be on the darker, or more crass side, but they perfectly highlight some of the darker,
0: more bitter thoughts you have going through this. Another listener, Megan, already gave birth to one child, but she's struggling to get pregnant again. I lean on this quote that says, there's no need to rush. What is meant for you always arrives on time. I literally have it on a post-it note next to my desk and I look at it
1: anytime. I'm just feeling overwhelmed or doubtful about this process. And I know the second baby will be here someday and I'm just really tired of
0: waiting. And we heard from Roxanne, who went through breast cancer treatment and was told she couldn't have kids and decided to adopt instead.
1: I nearly had a breakdown uh, waiting and wondering and being, you know, just not knowing uh, if we were ever going to get picked to uh, adopt. And uh, everyone told me, just get a hobby. So I did. I asked my husband for um, uh, a Christmas gift of um, pottery lessons. Well, um, fast forward, uh, now my kid is four years old, she has adopted, um, and I'm now a professional potter.
0: We are still collecting your suggestions for an audio infertility survival guide that we are building. We've mostly heard from women so far, so everyone else, please feel free to send in your tips if you've been impacted by infertility, too. Record a voice memo about what's helped you through it. Maybe it's something you read, something you listened to, a mantra that you repeated. Email that voice memo to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. After Amanda's husband died, rapidly and unexpectedly, she was left with her two children and the knowledge that her husband had been sleeping with someone else. What was that like in the days, in first weeks after his death, when people are offering their condolences and saying nice things about your Husband who's just died. Oh, Lord, it is so hard. It is
1: so awful. It's awful, it's awful, it's awful. Because you have to maintain the illusion, and just because somebody's dead doesn't mean they're a saint, except in this case. My husband really was, like, very well-liked, and you know, was like the go-to guy to get things done. And he was this lively, engaging person and everybody really liked him. So you had loads of people who were genuinely torn up and so sad that he was gone and wanted to share this with me because now you've got to be this plate for everybody else's feelings about your dead husband. You don't get around to your feelings until
0: maybe a year or two after the funeral. Did a wave of, of anger about the affair hit you after his death? Yeah. Things got
1: really messy after that. Things were really bad. The anger I had was primarily directed towards the woman he'd had the affair with. Why, do you think? Well, you can't blame the dead guy. So, I wanted her to hurt. Because, oh my gosh, this hurt that I was now enduring, having to bury him, and having to raise our children without him, Oh, I wanted her to know what that was
0: like. Did you have any interaction with her?
1: No, no. I had maybe a few crackpot schemes to extract revenge, but nothing that ever would have made any sense. So I never acted on anything. I had a piece of paper, and in a pencil, I drew a line on it. I guess maybe like a six-inch line. And I said, I'm going to give myself this line, but this is where I am right now. I'm at a full six inches worth of anger. And as I start to let go of that, I'm just going to erase a little bit of the line. And when that whole line is gone, I don't get to be angry about this anymore. Just take a little bit of that line off. And gradually the line, it just got shorter and shorter and shorter. And one day it was gone. And I'm like, okay, I don't get to be angry about this anymore. The lines erased. How long did that take? Probably about six months. Where did you keep the paper? I kept it in my wallet, folded up, and it unfolded. It was so worn by the time I'd taken it out and unfolded. And sometimes I just look at it, you know, how angry I'm. Like, oh okay. And I never redrew the line. I have to say, I never redrew the line. It was when you've let go of it, it's gone for good. So don't erase it
0: if you aren't really letting it go. As time went on, Amanda says she became less angry when she remembered her husband and more sad. I think I probably understood why he did it better than he did.
1: Why do you say that? With the arrival of the children, that certainly diverted a lot of my attention. Yeah, you know, my career had now moved into the executive level, basically out-earning my husband by a factor of two. So, you know, there was a lot going on. And it's really easy for somebody who is easily distracted, as my late husband was, very easily distracted... By the shiny and the new to move on to something that's a lot shinier and a lot newer than I was at that point.
0: But there were still other secrets to deal with. Amanda says after her husband's death, she discovered that he'd been spending money in ways she didn't know about.
1: A lot of money. So yeah, we were utterly broke. I had to borrow money from my folks to uh, take care of his death expenses. (laughs) Um through some Hail Mary bit of paperwork that his employer did, I was also able to get a small annuity. And it turns out that even my employer had a small uh, life insurance policy for family members. So all of these little dibs and dabs come together... And you just start rebuilding. You just start rebuilding from scratch. Did you keep working full time? I did. I had a really good assistant. She said that for the first six months that, uh, that I was widowed, that I would come in and she'd check on me like about 30 minutes after I arrived. And I would just be staring at the monitor, and she'd say, okay, here are the two things you have to do today. You are the only person who can do these two things. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do those now. Okay. And that's how I got through the first, probably about the first six months, roles were totally reversed, That is a good assistant. (laughs) I was really lucky. She's pretty amazing.
0: So Amanda slowly rebuilt her finances and got used to being a single mom.
1: I took a solid two years off (laughs) of any kind of relationship um, after I was widowed because I realized there was a lot of work I needed to do on myself. That I was not fit for public consumption. <laughs> <laughs> so I took a long time to just, uh, you know, sort of, sit with myself for a while.
0: And after that, it was, yes, I would like to meet somebody. So Amanda started online dating. That's how she met Frank, a single father. That's not his real name either. Frank is very different,
1: and I learned a lot in my first marriage. And my second marriage was done with very careful consideration and a much better understanding of who I am and what's important to me and how we will pull together as a couple there's a great deal of benefit of getting married at 40 as opposed to getting married at 27.
0: What kind of conversations did you have about cheating and monogamy when you were getting together with Frank? It's the only deal-breaker that I am aware of Frank having.
1: Hmm. It is the deal-breaker. And having gone through what I went through, I was Surprised that I'm like, this is not as comforting as one may think it should be. You know, you'd think, you know, after having gone through what I went through with my first husband, that I'd want the security of knowing that this man will always be faithful to me, but there's something that's difficult about that. there is something difficult about having any kind of limit placed on your personal behavior. There's something very... Uh, you don't want somebody else telling you what to do, even if it's something that you agree is totally the right and best choice to make. Just the the idea that it's, someone else has imposed that on you is hard to take. So... It was, I look at it this way, it was my choice to accept those terms, but I'll never know if my first marriage would have survived. I'll never know. Sam died. Our contract was null and void the minute that happened. I'll never know if we would have survived or not.
0: It's been five years since Amanda shared this story with us. And she reached out recently to tell us that she'd lost someone else close to her, her dad. She was there by his side when he died in September from dementia.
1: So when people tell me that they're sorry my father is dead, this time I can thank them honestly. I'm not brooding about the larger ramifications that his death is going to have on my life. He was my dad and he launched me into the world many decades ago. Greatest loss is that even though he'd already launched me, he circled back when Sam died. And he picked me up again and he dusted me off and he propped me up and said, you can do this. And when I mumbled that, I, you know, I didn't think I could, he simply said, well, you don't have much choice. You're going to get through this. I didn't raise a daughter who walked away from something just because it got hard. So my dad basically saved my life. And... There is no one left who will ever do that
0: for me again. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Affie Yellow Duke, Emily Botin, and Andrew Dunn. Special thanks to Chester Jesus Soria, Hannah McCarthy, and Rick Kwan for their work on this episode. The Reverend John Delour and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at AnnaSailPix, P-I-C-S, and the show is on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at DeathSexMoney. If you are not signed up for our weekly newsletter, make sure you subscribe. We send out a weekly email with a note from me, listener letters from our inbox, and updates about what we're working on behind the scenes. Sign up at DeathSexMoney.org. Do you think you will ever tell your children about your husband's affair? (sighs) I don't
1: know. Children grow up to become adults. They're not always children, and they become much more capable of understanding that their parents are people, too. For now, we still maintain, Daddy was a wonderful person who loved you very much,
0: because that part isn't a lie. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.